welcome to Geeksweb. This is the podcast for film news, reviews and interviews where we talk about hot topics, cult film, trailer talk and indeed the MKH Cup. Today we are bringing you an inspiration interview and my co-host with me today is King Dom. Hi there. We have tried our best to bring the brightest and greatest stars of the film industry as you know it today so that you can find out about any expertise, anecdotes and general advice that is about getting into film careers, understanding film better or just understanding how films are made in general. So King Dom, have you got any idea what type of person we have on today's episode? Well... You've told me that it's someone with an amazing and extensive filmography across many different roles. So I'm very intrigued who you've lined up for us. So we are being joined by a gentleman who has up to 99 film credits. He is also, and that's just in one role as either second unit director or assistant director. He's also worked on projects including The Man From Uncle, City of Ember, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Ra One, James Bond, and even Now You See Me Too, as well as the infamous TV series featuring Idris Elba, Luther. So today we are joined by the, I wouldn't even say a quintuple threat, he's a production manager, an assistant director, a first assistant director, also an actor, location management, as well as having producer credits. We bring you today the golden boy of the British film industry, Terry Bamba. Thank you for joining us, Terry. Really appreciate it. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, you are a bit of an evergreen star of uh, all that's good and great about the British film industry. And um, dare I say... Your credits even go back into the 1970s with some really serious kind of signposts of the British television industry, including uh, Castaway and The Famous Five. I mean, how do you manage to pack so many credits into into your career? Well, I've, I've been very, very lucky. I mean, I've it suddenly dawned on me this year is my 51st year working in films and television and the associated industries. And if there's one piece of advice I'd like to give to anybody it is whatever you do, whatever job you do, you have got to do it with your whole heart and you have got to enjoy each day and live it to the full. Because I remember my grandfather saying to me, life will fly by. And now as, as I'm coming up to 65, that is true. It has absolutely, it's been a wonderful ride, but it has flown by. But it's been a fantastic, a fantastic life that I've, 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 I've been lucky enough to, 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 to achieve. And, and that luck, um, in some ways, you've got no control over, but you have got control over what you can do to help get you into a situation to create that luck. Um, and that's why um, now I'm, I'm very much as well as still working as an assistant director and production manager. I'm involved with the Montfort University and Leicester Media School. There's a wonderful school at Pinewood Studios called Creative Media Skills. 
where you can go and you can do courses on all, all, all aspects of the film and television industry. And the really exciting thing is, you know, that the media is changing so much. There's so many platforms that you can get work on that there is there is a this is a great time if you want to get a career in film and television that, that they're crying out for more people all the time. So, Terry, can we bring you right back to the start? What was your very first involvement with the film and TV industry and how did you get into it? Well, I'll, I'll go right the right the way back to, um, I was very lucky. Uh, my, my father and my two uncles all worked in the film and television industry. Um, my father started at Gainsborough Studios, which was Alfred Hitchcock's famous studios back in the late forties. Um, and he got to work with um, people like Norman Wisdom and George Fawn, but he worked on the very first Carry On film, which was Carry On Sergeant. And I got to work on the last one, uh, which wasn't as good as Carry On Sergeant, Carry On Columbus. But it, it, it had about three funny lines in it. But, uh, um, but the uh, dad used to take my sister and I to the studio. Um, and one of my first ever memories is seeing the wonderful volcano set from You Only Live Twice, uh, which just absolutely blew my imagination. And just being there and being so small, looking up around me, thinking, my goodness, this is where my dad comes to work. Um, that, that sowed the first seeds. But going back even before that, um, dad was working out in Trinidad and Tobago in 1959 on a Walt Disney film, uh, Swiss Family Robinson. Um, and while he was out there, my mother and my grandparents decided to take me to see the Alamo, John Wayne's The Alamo. And I must have been four or five. And I, I thought, strange film to take a child of that age to see where all the so-called heroes get killed in the end. Um, but that, again, I, the, the music, the scale, oh, I, it was something I, I so wanted to be involved in. Having seen that Alamo, and which had wonderful music by Dimitri Tionkin, suddenly uh, film music has been a very important part of, of my life and my career. And in fact, my favorite genre of films and theater is musical theater. I used to love all the old, the old musicals. Um, but in 1964, I went to see Zulu, which was uh, a fabulous film, magnificent film. And that film really did cement it. That was before we went to see a volcano set. That was before, I want to tell you another story where dad took us to Pinewood Studios and he was doing a, a film that Brian Forbes was directing called The Whisperers, which was about a lonely old lady starring Dame Edith Evans. And I, I, so I was about 10 when I saw that. And I remember watching her in this scene where all she was doing was making a cup of tea and moving around the kitchen. And she was mesmerizing. I, and, I, and so suddenly I thought, oh, maybe I'd like to be an actor as well as work in films and television. So it was all being sewn there. And um, dad did a, a movie with, with Morecambe and Wise. So we got to go on location when, he was, when they were filming near Pinewood Studios. So it does, I, I always remember my career teacher. Uh, I spent about three minutes in my career class. She said, well, you're probably gonna go into films and television, aren't you? Because I think I didn't talk about anything else other than films. Um, so that, that was really it. And in 1969, uh, dad was doing a film called The Raging Moon. Uh, which Brian Falls was directing with Malcolm McDowell was starring in it and Annette Newman. Um, and it's about a footballer who sadly gets injured, becomes paraplegic. And it's a really moving, really good film. 
Um, and my sister and I uh, were taken along to Blee's supporters standing by the goalpost in the opening sequence where he scores the goal. Extra work. So that was, and in fact, if anybody is looking to work into films and television, do not be afraid to do background work. It's a, you know, either you may decide that you enjoy being a background artist and carry on with that as a career, but it's also a great way to, to look at whatever everybody else is doing and learn about, oh yeah, maybe I do want to go into the camera department or I'd like to try the visual effects team. So there, there used to be a, a long time ago, unfortunately, a thing that the, the background artists were just merely called extras and weren't treated very well. Uh, but now as we're much more enlightened, Everybody is important in films, in, in whatever job you're doing. Um, I've, I've worked on a film once where the director didn't turn up, but we were able to carry on filming because we'd storyboarded it. The DOP knew what he wanted. So we were able to roll the cameras. But on one occasion, the wardrobe bus driver had overslept and we couldn't film because we couldn't get the costumes. Every, everybody is important. Um, so you mustn't be afraid if you have to start at the bottom. Because we all, that's where we all start. When, when I had my first job, I was called the unit runner. Um, sure. Now they're a bit posher. I think it's called the production assistant now when you come in, which is an, a glorified name for a runner. And I think dad was called a page boy when he started the Gainsborough Studios. And they wore suits uh, and a tie in those days. Um, unbelievable. So I did, so I did, so I, I worked on the Raging Moon. And I was just at age where dad wanted me to get a paper round. And he said, look, I'm, I've got a film called Dulcimer uh, with John Mills was starring in and Carol White. And they needed a, a runner to work in the office at Elstree Studios. So that was in, I think, I think that was 70. So that was my, my first sort of job as I was useless. I could not do anything right. You know, everybody tells you the jokes where the, the, uh, the cages would tell you to go and buy KY jelly. And so I'm trying to find KY jelly to buy in its food to eat. Um, but it's, it's a, it, was a, it was a great start to go to Elstree because at that time, Elstree hadn't become the home of Star Wars. You know, this is like 69, 70, and Star Wars wasn't until 77. But it, just, to be, just to be part of a film studio is so exciting. You've moved through some eras, and uh, thanks for correcting me on the word, the phrase extras, because it seems like I'm using outdated terminology would you say changing the names or changing the roles of how people participate has that made it more of a family type experience on film sets i i try to do that i mean i as i say i've been very lucky I've, I've worked with some wonderful people whose whole ethos is that we are a team and you're making the film together and that's whether you're the I don't know, somebody that's locking off the end of a street as a location manager, or you're the person providing food. Um, and there was a wonderful person I must talk about um, who I didn't meet till later in my career, a gentleman called Mickey Moore. And if, if any of your listeners would like to look him up, a most amazing man. Uh, I worked with him when he was 83 uh, on 101 Dalmatians, the live action, the first live action with um, Glenn Close. He was 83 when we did that movie and he had more energy and tenacity than any of the youngsters around him. And in fact, he was the second unit director with Steven Spielberg on the first three Indiana Jones movies. And his career goes back to 1916 when he was two or three. He played baby Jesus to Mary Pickford 
He was Cecil B. DeMille's prop man and assistant director. He directed Elvis Presley in a movie in the 60s. Just look, Mickey Moore, he, if you, and he's got a wonderful little book called My Magic Carpet Rider Films. If you read that book, that will inspire anybody to want to work in the industry. Just the most amazing man, gifted man, brilliant director, and treated everybody with utter respect and taught me that a please and thank you costs nothing, but it, it, it means everything. And unfortunately, as, you, as we all know, there's unfortunate some people in our industry that don't always behave that way. Fingers probably pointed at me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wanting to know another thing about you, Terry, because you've moved into the film industry and it seems like you were predestined, even from school days, to kind of do something in film. What was the moment for you that cemented the idea that you're not going to be doing a civilian job going forward and that this like what was the workplace moment where you thought I'm inside or got my feet under the table I, 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 I well I think in 1969 when I did this first film just as a, a background artist um, and, I, and it was at Elstree Studios and being close and watching Brian Forbes directing Malcolm McDowell and just that whole and and the the fun that people were having there was a lot of fun a lot of banter between um, and thinking, you know, I, I thought I was going to turn up there for about 10 minutes. They'd turn the camera on. I'd do the cheer when they go and they go home. And of course, an hour, 12, 11 hours later, you're still there trying to get it right. Uh, and I thought, well, <laughs> this, this, I, I, there was just something there. Plus, obviously, the experience of going to see the You Only Live Twice set. Um, and Dad also worked on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, so we'd gone to see the windmill set for that and all the different things that, he used to bring home the props he used to bring home from films. He, he did a film, what the, one of the films he did with Malcolm and Wise, they were toy salesmen. And just when the action man were coming out in England, in America, they were GI Joes and the action man had just came out here. And I remember he came home with about 25 action men for me to, to, to have as a, as a present. Unfortunately, a lot of them had arms, legs and the heads missing because they'd all been blown up in spite of special effects in the story. Um, but, but wonderful props he used to bring home and the stories that he used to tell of the people he was working with. You know, he, in 1966, he worked on a film called The Countess from Hong Kong, which Charlie Chaplin directed. Uh, and in fact, the day that I was born on June the 3rd, 1956, it was a Sunday and dad was at Shepperton Studios working with Charlie Chaplin on a movie called The King in New York. Um, he, he was one of the dressing prop teams in that, which was in charge of putting all the props on the set. And when he got the phone call to say that I, had just, I was about to be born, he complained he was going to lose the double day overtime on the Sunday. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I've been a nuisance all my life. But um, just those, those wonderful stories. And he, he knew people that had worked on, the, on Oliver. Um, and as I say, I love musicals. They, um, yeah. um, one of my first films that I ever remember seeing it was Yankee Doodle Dandy uh, mm. with Jimmy Cagney. Uh, it was a brilliant film. Sure. And, and you've, you've gone into the film industry um, as a background extra, but you also worked on The Famous Five as a training assistant director before moving on to your first role as a third assistant director. What was it like working on the Famous Five as your 
first, let's say, regular role because you had 26 episodes there. So yeah. you well, well, well. The funny thing was, the Famous Five didn't happen till 1977. Okay. So before, so before that, so after doing the background work, Dad would get me work as as a runner on films during school time. I went to sixth form college. Uh, came out of sixth form college. I, I um, and in 1974, uh, I just finished my A levels. What did you study? At, um, I, 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 I'm not going to tell <laughs> you. The um, I well at that point I did my the, my key subject was religious studies, okay. was theology. Right. Um, I found that fascinating, but uh, that's a, that's another interview sure. I think, but. Um, but um, it, no, I finished my A-levels and dad was working at Pinewood on one of our dinosaurs is missing for Walt Disney Productions. So he took me and said, right, you've done your education. Now you're going to get a job. And this is where luck is so important. We, we went into the Pinewood, the main studio block. And the first door that we knocked at was the uh, production manager called Claude Hudson. who was a friend of dad's who was the production manager on The Man with the Golden Gun. And as it happened, the unit runner on that job had just finished because he'd got his union ticket and was leaving to become a third assistant. Sure. So they needed a runner to start the following Monday. Okay. As I opened the door. So my first James Bond film I worked on what was The Man with the Golden Gun. Wow. Uh, which and was just the most amazing experience. Uh, I must tell you that my first day on that job was... Um, Roger, Roger Moore or, or Sir Roger used to love having chicken sandwiches on brown bread at the end of each day's filming. So my first day, I was so excited I was going to meet Roger Moore and I queued up at the at the restaurant, the famous restaurant department to get his sandwiches. And in those days, we didn't put cling film on the sandwiches. Okay. So it was just an empty plate with like a little uh, serviette on top. So I've, I've gone to his, his dressing room, I've knocked on the door um, and one of the assistants opened the door and, and Roger was back against by the window and just the excitement of seeing him, my hand was shaking so much, the sandwiches fell out of my hand and laid <laughs> sandwich down on the floor. Uh, oh. And he was so nice. He just said, I'm supposed to be watching my figure. Uh, and it was uh, just so <laughs> lovely about it. And, it, it and, and, that, and that was just a great experience. And then also, I'll show you how useless I was. I, I was helping at the end of the film when we'd finished filming, we used to have to sell the props off anybody that wanted to buy the props. Mm. And I was going around with, with the head property man walking and walked into a, a piece of wood sticking out and badly injured my oh. eye. Uh, and I was taken to the hospital in Cubby's Rolls Royce. Cubby Broccoli. Yeah, Cubby Broccoli's Rolls wow. Royce and took me to Wexton Park. So, I mean, that for that, that my career started so brilliantly that it was all downhill after that <laughs> because uh, that was just wonderful. Great. I think it's, it's great that you got a taste of. Um roger moore's charm because i mean that's basically the biggest one of the biggest characteristics he brought to the james bond universe to make it his own so to see that in real life must be a really amazing well and also because he um he was a very kind man uh, my dad had worked on a film that he had started called uh, the man who haunted himself uh, and roger was very loyal to people and and so um would get dad work on the persuaders series afterwards oh wow um, and and when he, uh, later on he was doing his his tour, his one man show, which I say one man show, he was interviewed with a lovely man called Gareth Owen, who's a good friend of mine. Sure. Um, uh, Dad was invited, went along to one of the shows, and uh, Gareth said that we Dicky Bamber is here to see you, and he said, well as long as he's paid for his ticket, I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, 
great band, and and I enjoyed his Bond films. They were they were of of that time, but they were they were like event movies, weren't yeah. they? They weren't really supposed to be taken seriously, mm. and they still had John Barry doing a lot of the great music for them. So yeah, uh, I enjoyed his films. I I always felt that Roger Moore helped to make James Bond more mainstream, even though Sean Connery is probably the definitive. Uh, tax and nails what a spy agent would be like i think roger moore kind of he kind of creates there's a lot of personalities in there yeah. because he gets to work yeah. with like grace jones christopher walken uh, i think stephen burkoff at one point as well says so like yeah. he gets he's got the really supreme character actors and also think that 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 in, in the spy who loved me, the opening sequence when the, the when he comes up, skis off the edge and the and the parachute opens, just that pure fun and and, and the the joy. That's what I liked that he brought to the Bond films. Mm. Um, and and there were some very good moments in the Bond films. I like Live and Let Die. I thought was very well done. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the man with a golden gun for me didn't quite work so mm. well. Um, that was great. Like, again, I got to meet John Barry on that. Mm. I, the, um, every day they take the film to his apartment, his flat in uh, Chelsea for him to put on mm. his movieola so he could uh, sync up the music. And the drivers knew how much I liked John Barry's music, so suggested I took the, the, the film to him one evening. But again, oh, wow. same with the world drive. He, not, he opened the door and I went, this is for you! <laughs> I, it, was, it was a dream come true, all that because I'd grown up with James Bond movies and to actually be working on it. And I got invi invited to the cast uh, and crew showing at Pinewood in, in what was Theatre 7, which is now the John Barry Theatre, which I never dreamed Incredible. of to go to that. I mean, unbelievable. So before we leave the man with the golden gun behind, can I ask you if you had any encounters with Christopher Lee that you remember? Yes, yes, one of my, again, lovely man, one of my, uh, as, as we got towards the end of production, we had the second unit that would shoot at the weekend, and we, I don't know if you remember the, the, uh, the fun house sequence, where I was asked to, to go on set to help uh, the assistant directors, and part of that was cueing Mr. Lee for him to step out, as, because he couldn't see when, the, when the, the, gun, the shaft of light was there. I have never been so nervous in my life. It's the first, I think probably only the first or second time I'd ever used a Motorola uh, and, and waiting. And uh, I think that the assistant director was a gentleman called Ray Freeborn, and he was going to give me a click cue so that he didn't take, uh, spoil Roger's uh, concentration. So he would rub the uh, walkie-talkie against his, his jacket. And I thought, am I going to hear it? Am I going to hear it? And, and with all that, just we did one rehearsal, and I, knew, and I did miss it. Uh, and Mr. Lee said, don't worry, I'm going to step out. And he's so tall. I'm, I'm, I'm going to step out so I can take my own cue. And he, and he did it in such a nice way. As Obviously, he knew that I didn't have the foggiest idea what I was doing. Um, but uh, brilliant. And I thought he was terrific at Scaramanga. I, just, I think he was great in anything he did. Yeah, because he's been so famous in the, the Hammer House of Horror series as well. Both playing. I think he's played... Count Dracula and um, Van Helsing, hasn't he? On both sides. I don't know if he played back because he used to do a lot of work with Peter Cushing. They were a great double act, weren't they? Yeah, and yeah. Cushing yeah. was always Van Helsing, I remember. But yeah. uh, I won, and a wonderful voice, wonderful voice. Just coming back into your role, Terry, because you said you started off as a runner, but then you moved from third assistant director to second assistant director 
when you started working on things like the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. What kind of change in experience or responsibility happens when you go from third to second? Well, it, the, the main thing of it really, as, a, as when you start as a runner or as a production assistant, that is you're prepared to do anything. You know, you're, you're, in, you're in charge of making sure that the tea and coffee is presented on set properly, running messages backwards and forwards. And when I'm on the man with the golden gun, when I, because I was the unit runner rather than an on-set runner, which meant I was back in the production office. And my role there was uh, when the call sheet had been printed. In those days, we had Xerox machines. So you had to, you know, had to run off the, the, the call sheet and then get them around the studio uh, before the studio would close. You were literally the machine behind the machine. Yeah. And and I tell you, the number of times those Gestetner, uh, um, not the Gestetner, the, the actual thing you typed on, the, mm. that would split. So you'd have yeah. to try and put it together so there was no line of ink on the call sheet. And, in a, and on The Man With A Golden Gun, we started at 8.30 in the morning and we wrapped at 5.30, not mm. like nowadays working. And they, because of the unions at Final, we had to get the call sheet to the powerhouse every by 10 past five. So it was always a mad rush. Um, not like nowadays where we, because we got email and everything, we can email the call sheet out at midnight and let everybody know what's going on. But that was a great, that was great because again, I got to meet all the different departments. I'd go to the art department, I'd go to the special effects department, the lighting, you see all the different lights and, and never be scared to ask anybody a question. There is no such thing as a stupid question. The only stupid question is the one you don't ask, really. Because it, uh, and actually, I, could, I, I tell this story to my students I, when I was a third assistant, because you going up from being a runner to a third is really you get more responsibility because you're on the set more as a third assistant you're involved with organizing the background action of, of bringing the artists onto set making sure they go back to their trailers um but when i was as i stepped up to being a third assistant i worked with a wonderful scottish director john mckenzie who had directed the long good friday and we were filming up in in settle in, in yorkshire with a film called the innocent with liam neeson uh, tom bell uh, and Miranda Richardson and I could never understand what John was saying and he had a very thick Scottish accent and then suddenly it came on the radio I need my chewy so hey chewy now I I don't know why I just thought that was some posh name for chewing gum so I went and spent 20 minutes looking for chewing gum I'm hearing this voice on the radio getting more where is my effing chewy now, all I had to do was I'd say to him on the radio, but because he was a director, I didn't want to seem too stupid. I find someone to say, what is a Chewy? And of course, it's a French name for a viewfinder. It's a director's viewfinder oh. made by the company Chewy. So it, okay. if I'd asked that question in the beginning, I would yeah. have, wouldn't have had that 20 minutes of stomach churning fear. Yeah. Um, he, was a, he was a nice man, a good director. Can I ask the question? Did you give him the viewfinder or the chewing gum? Luckily, I found a camera assistant who gave him the viewfinder and I kept a low profile. I keep out of his way for a while. And I wanted to say one thing just before I hand over to Don that uh, Pinewood Studios is no small space. That is a, it's not just a parking lot. I mean, it's like four or five, let's say, council flat blocks. Yeah to maneuver how do you move from the office to on set 
in a kind of a seamless way. Well, the good thing, because everybody knows, if if you if you go into the office and all the people I talked to when I started on the Man with the Golden Gun was I wanted to be an assistant director, so they knew, mm -hmm. so they gave me the opportunity to go on the set with the second unit with Christopher Lee at the first opportunity. So it, it's it is those people you're finding a mentor or finding somebody that will give you that next step up. And in fact, the young, the young, uh, my young third assistant director I've got with me on this film, on the last job we worked together, she was a PA. Um, but my, 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 because the industry is still busy at the moment, everybody is still trying to make films everywhere. My, the third I wanted to have wasn't available. So I brought Zoe on and now she's stepping up. And all it is, is really don't want to, don't try to step up too fast. You know, do, do four or five films as a PA learn how to be a PA, learn how to be a, what makes a good PA. My advice to, to youngsters is never do more than five days work experience. Because if you, because obviously work experience means you're not getting paid. You might get some expenses to get to the location or the studio. But if you do more than five days and people will say to you, yeah, no, this is good for you. You're going to meet these people, good contacts. No, if you're asked to do more than five days, you're doing a job that someone should be paid to. So either you should be paid to be doing it or it should have been a position filled by somebody that was paying it. That's that's my I really think that uh, people should try to stick to that because there's a lot of money in the film industry. And I know I mean, I I did a film uh, four years ago uh, which uh, as um, a favor to uh, a, a young director who had been my runner. He had been my runner 10 years ago. And it's a great film. If anybody gets a chance to see it, really move with powerful film called The Flood with Ivano Jeremiah and Lena Headey and Ian Glenn. And it's about a refugee trying to come to England and how the social services tried to deal with it. A really powerful film. And we did that for next to no money. But I like the script so much and I like the, the young director that I agreed to do it for one week's money. I worked on it for seven weeks and I did it for one week's money. Um, so I think you're, you're, throughout your career, you're gonna get those, those times where you think, yeah, okay, I've got, obviously you've got to pay your mortgage, your bills, you've got to support your family, but you're now and again, you get a real passion project that you say, yeah, no, I have to, I want to do that and, and not to worry about the money. But I am, I'm still a member of the Production Guild of Great Britain. I'm, I'm a BAFTA member. Um, I've never became a member of the DGA because that was uh, I was past all that when the D now all the assistant directors can apply to join DGA now because we've got so much more involvement with American studios and bringing their films over to England. Uh, but I'm also a member of Equity. I'm, I'm a member of Bechtu, and I've just signed up. There's a new assistant directors association which is linked to Bechtu, which is trying to keep everybody's standards high. And give everybody, you know, make sure that people don't get taken the mick of with with, with uh, wages and everything. Um, so that is important, but don't rush it. Do five films, six films as a PA, and then uh, you'll be, probably become part of a team anyway. That as a first has got a second he likes to use or she likes to use, and then you can become part of that because a team now especially on bigger films, is, is so much larger because you, you've got a, a unit-based assistant or a PA that has to help look after the unit-based for help for a second assistant. Because the second assistant director does all the paperwork. And there's a lot of assistant directors I know who hated that. 
They, they love being a third because you're, you're on the set, you're in there, and they've tried to leapfrog being a second and going straight to first. I would advise against that. You, you, you've really got to know all sides so that when you're on, when you are firsting on the floor, you know what the second is up against. You know the second is preparing the call sheet, the risk assessments, you know, planning for rehearsals, costume fittings, hair and makeup. Um, it's a really intense. The sec, I had second assistant directing when I was a second assistant director. You work ridiculous hours, really ridiculous hours. Um, whereas the first, you can you at the end of the day, you have your meeting with the director and the DOP to plan next day, and you can go off after half an hour or so, and then leave the poor second to work it all out. So, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, can you explain what is the main difference between being a first AD and the director? Ah, well, now the director, of course, is the is the person, the lucky person who gets to see his or her vision of a script come to life. Um, and they get to, obviously, they plan everything. It's their vision uh, of what the, that script should be. Um, and the assistant director, somebody rather cruelly said, it's like being a sergeant major. You're as an assistant director. But I, because I've trained as an actor, because I think there's a little bit of creativity. I mean, I don't like it when people say that. I, like, I believe that an assistant director is there to make sure that you film the schedule because every film has to have a schedule. It's, it, you can't say, oh yeah, we'll make this film for 200 days if you've only got money to make it in 20 days. So part of my job as an assistant director is to schedule the film to give us the best possible chance for the director to have the most time on screen. The, that's how I see being an assistant director, is to create the time that you're turning over the camera as much as possible so that the creative people have got that time to do what they need to do. I, I love I love watching good directors. I love um, I love Mike. Well, sadly, Michael Apted, who passed away, was a wonderful director. Who, 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 I love watching him with actors, uh, but also the way he would treat everybody. He again, he totally understood that everybody had an important part to play in film and television and was just an absolute joy to work with. So I, I was very to see that, sad to see that he'd passed. Um, directing, sometimes you can, yeah, you can make a film without a good director. If you, you might have a director who really loves working with actors, but has got no idea of how to do action, or has got no idea of how he or she wants to tell the story in terms of where the camera's going. And again, that's where it becomes a team effort. Uh, and a, a good director will choose a team around him or her that will help them achieve their vision. For me, the director is more a captain of a ship. I know that you know, you've got Martin Scorsese, you've got David Lean, you've got wonderful directors like that. Equally, they always had very good people around them and, and people that they would trust to come up with ideas and suggestions. The bad directors are those who shout and scream because they think that's what they've got to do to, to maintain their power on the set. Whereas I love the quietly spoken ones. Uh, and, and it's all about the planning as well. In the planning, when you're making the schedule of getting a shot list of how many shots you need to take to tell that, that particular scene you're filming, we use storyboards. And that's the same for all film, whether it's a film like a Bond film or a Tomb Raider or Man From Uncle, and on this film, we've got storyboards for key sequences because we're filming some musical sequences in the film we're doing at the moment. 
So it, it, and it's good to know where you want to be for that particular part of the song, where the camera's going to be and who's involved in that. So it's all about planning, all about planning. And then what to do when the plan goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you would say that part of the role is being very meticulous in planning and the other part is being able to think of solutions very quickly. Exactly. I, I don't know, again, because I'm getting it. There was a wonderful BBC uh, series which starred Derek Jacobi, I, Claudius, uh, which Herbie Wise directed. And again, Herbie, I worked with Herbie later on in his life when we, and we were doing a, a television series in, in Budapest starring Derek Jacobi uh, called Brother Cadfile. And it was about a medieval monk that sold crimes. Really, really atmospheric and really great to work on. Um, and Herbie came in to direct a couple of scenes. Well, all the directors that we'd had so far weren't able to achieve a day's work in 12 hours. We were always doing one hour's overtime or two hours overtime. Herbie came in. Not only did we finish on time, we sometimes finished ahead of time because he knew through his experience what shots he wanted and where he was going to cut the movie. He didn't just say, right, I better get a close-up of her because I might need that close-up. He knew what shots he wanted. But also planning when things went wrong. We were, going, we were doing this particular scene, I remember, and we thought we had an hour to do it. And then suddenly the clouds came over. It was going to... And I think one of the actors had to leave to go on to another project the following day. So Herbie said, right, we'll do it in a, uh, we'll do it in a tracking two shot. So you start on them far away, coming towards us, you know, there'll be the sound to be over the image of them. And then they've come forward and develop into a two shot and play the whole scene that way. So we told the story and we told the story well, but it's having that ability and your and the, the faith in yourself as a director that what you're doing is will work when you get it back together in the edit. So again, we'll do the other things about editors. Um, they're an important part of the team and good directors will always try to work with the same editor, um, it's but they I I love I I'm, I I am fingers crossed. I've been talking about trying to direct my own uh, little film uh, for the last four years, and I, I I know everybody wants to do that, and um, but it might it might happen next year if COVID gets sorted. I've got a, there's a couple of Canadian uh, producers that are interested in it. And it's a little horror film. It's written by a friend of mine. It's called The Pub, and um, and so there'll be lots of drinking there as well. Um, but it's, it's, I, it, but I don't know if anybody would remember Hill Street Blues. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Great show. If, if you watch that, if you want to be an assistant director or you want to direct, if you watch the background action in Hill Street Blues, it's magical. Background action is so important. That's why, you know, that's the creative part of being an assistant director. And because of Hill Street Blues, when I got to work on the first, uh, series of, of Luther uh, with Idris, um, I was able to, to try and bring that to the police station scenes there. So we cast the same background actors each time we went into there and asked them to develop their characters, to have their own arc. And Id Idris was so pleased with it that he would start engaging with them. So he would, as he would come in ahead of when he was starting his scene, he would, he would interact with the background much more than if it was just, yeah, you come in, you walk from left to right and you walk from right to left. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, and, and, that, and also that way, background artists get invested in what they're doing. They, they care about it. Uh, I, I, I love working with the background. And we did um, in, in Cardiff, 
in 91, I think it was, Thames Television at that time used to do all the, the, the things there, and they did a Boxing Day special movie. And this year they were going to do one called Pirate Prince, which was Tandy Newton's first film. She was 17 and she was starring it. And they used a lot of actors from London's Burning. James Hazeldean was playing the pirate. And because we were filming down in Cardiff, at that we never didn't need to use the background artists from the London agency. So when I went to a place like that, we'd go to a job center and then we'd hold open auditions. And when we did that, the, the, the lovely lady at the job center said, well, look, we've, we're, we're trying to regenerate um, the Cardiff Dockland area. We've got lots of drug issues, lots of drink issues. It'd be lovely if you could meet some of the, uh, our, our people that are struggling to see if they could be, they, they were perfect. They all looked like pirates. They were perfect. Uh, and they came and, and the, I, I think I had one conversation with the Thames, one of the Thames producers said, is this the right way to go? I said, absolutely, look. And the director loved the look of them and they were brilliant. And again, they, we, we created characters for them and they're, so they, they never let me down ever. They were always on time. They never wanted to go off, rush off. They, it was a brilliant, I'm not sure if it's available anywhere because obviously when Thames lost their franchise, so many of the wonderful films got caught in storage and no one knows where they are. But if you pirate prints, great, great little action yarn. And uh, so that, and that's, and that's where background is important. So I didn't think I'd ask this question, but do you ever watch films or TV shows and say the first assistant director isn't very good because I can see poorly directed background artists or just a lack of detail in the background? I, I would never say that because it's not always necessarily the assistant director's fault. I did, uh, when we did Gulliver's Travels with Jack Black in 2008, and of course, in, and we were filling with the little cushion and we had to try and get their eyeline. We had a, a background artist, about 200, looking up at Jack Black and trying to get their eyeline right. So we had a big cherry picker above us and I'm saying, look up there, look up, look up. It is, you, it's unbelievable how few people could actually concentrate on one thing. And the director was getting angry. They're not looking at him. They're not looking at him. I was trying everything. So at the end, I, I got my iPhone out and I phoned my mum. I said, mum, what do I do? They're not looking in the right direction. Um, because it was just, we, 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 we just weren't getting it. And, and the funny thing is, my eye does go to that one person who's not invested. And you'll always get that. Even in the big movies, um, I, think, I forget which movie I was watching last week. And there's a lot of background charging behind, behind the stunt team, obviously, as the soldiers. And there were two that were running like they were, you know, out for a Sunday afternoon stroll. And my eye immediately goes to that. And I, and I no, 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 get in there, fall over, get muddy. So it does, unfortunately, it does. But if a film's good enough, your suspension of disbelief, you go yeah. with all that. Yeah, it's like a bit of wallpaper falling yeah. down um, yeah. in a house for sale, I suppose. Um, uh, speaking of things that are like very small and finite, because... You've worked on six James Bond films. Uh, seven, uh, seven, seven you've got. Seven, just seven, yeah, because oh, the Golden Gun. Oh, okay, sorry about that. Um, and um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Man from Uncle, uh, even Edge of Tomorrow featuring Tom Cruise, as well as Brad Pitt sci-fi World War Z. Big budget sci-fi films. Can you let us go under the carpet and tell us some of your more frugal or maybe low budget or cost effective solutions that you made on set of any of these films? On that, well, when we did Edge of Tomorrow, 
we were coming towards the, the end of the shoot and there's a sequence where uh, Tom's character runs across Waterloo Bridge mm. and then one of the aliens comes up from the Thames. Sure. And I, I was the production manager on the second unit and we were going to be shooting it with Tom on a Sunday. And I was determined to get into a scene with Tom because I adore Tom Cruise. Cool. And I can promise everybody, he's who may have heard about his rant, that is so unlike him. Yeah. So, you know, that, that must be the pressure of, of what's going on yeah. with this COVID. And I don't, I really don't want people to think that he's like that. Do you know normal. what? I got the impression from Tom Cruise, and the media might not pick that, but I got the impression that it's a very delicate stage of the production and things can get shut down quite easily. And I think he's more aware of that than maybe some of the crew members. And I think yeah. some of the crew members don't realise if two or three people are under suspicion of COVID, that could be a chain of 10 other people who might have to come out of production and then all of a sudden you've lost the unit. Now, and you're right. And it, and, it is, and it is happening. There's so many productions going to pause. Like the, the film, I've just, I've just done a lovely little horror film called The Little People. So watch out for that when it comes out. And um, But we, we had to close down for 14 days because our second lead actor tested positive. Uh, you know, and we nearly weren't going to be able to finish the film because our lead actress had to leave to go to Canada to start on, on a film in Canada. So there is an enormous amount of pressure on, on trying. And like yesterday, we, we were rehearsing some of our numbers for this film and everybody has to wear their masks all the way through. Um, and when um, they were about to start singing, I had to move anybody in the first six rows of, of the, um, the auditorium to the back uh, under the COVID supervisor's instruction. Uh, it, it's, and it takes time. It's slowing down production because you can't let everybody on set at the same time to prepare. The art department go on to put their stuff, then the electricians, and then the cameras can go in, which slows everything down. It, 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 there is a lot of stress. Um, but on, on this particular time, I was determined to be in a scene with Mr. Cruz. So I, and as the second unit production manager, I told the director we only had a budget for half a dozen background artists in this scene on the bridge. And, um, and, and the director said, well, no, no, no I, I, I could buy that because everybody's running away from the aliens. So I was trying to be, I said, well, I can be one of them to save money because I've trained as an actor and I've, I've tried to gear it. I've been running past Tom just oh. as the monster would come over. That way they couldn't cut me out of the movie. Nice. That's a bit <laughs> of insider knowledge you used right there. Yeah, good uh, thinking. Now, the, the trouble with that was we were only supposed to be running halfway across Waterloo Bridge because we were locking off London either side of it. But my, my great friend, Terry Madden, was the first assistant and he kept pleading with the police to keep the, the lockdown down, which meant I had to do the run to get to the end position, then run back to the start mark. I was and on the, th the fourth take, I was so exhausted, I fell down the steps down where the, the producers were watching their monitors. They had to call a medic to me to try and give me, they thought I was having a heart attack. So, <laughs> got through that, finished the shop, go to see the movie. Yeah. And what happens just at the moment where the monster comes in, I'm just about to come in. They cut, they cut to the monster. I'm not oh. even in the film. Oh no. After all that. So it's, so you, you know, but uh, we've, I've also worked on um, Coronation Street. I doubt the youngsters will remember. There's a character called Bette Lynch and, and she did a famous return and we filmed in Calais. 
And again, we we didn't have any French. We we couldn't afford to bring any French actors into it. So there's a sequence when they're chasing through the streets of Calais, uh, and I said to the director, "Well, I could be a Frenchman carrying a baguette and having a French beret, and I could get knocked over." So I'm in that one. I did. I, they didn't cut me out of that one. They cut my line because I went "Mon Dieu," and I ended up on the. Um, there was a famous English newspaper called the News of the World, and I ended up in a picture of me and the actor in the News of the World doing that stunt as a baguette was flying and everything. So it was great fun. I imagine that you're going to be in the DVD extras of Edge of Tomorrow. I'm, I'm almost certain. Of well, that. I didn't make it to Edge of Tomorrow, but I did make it to The World Is Not Enough, which Michael Apke directed. And if you get the special, I'm doing some advertising. If you get the special uh, two-disc edition, on the second disc, because Michael Apke liked the boat chase so much, but it was just too long for the pre-credits, it's got the whole of the boat chase, which, is in, which includes me as a French waiter jumping out the way as a bomb flies through before he goes into the dome. So I did I did make that. I didn't make the whole film, but I did make the, the, the special cut. Wow. I, I should actually search that out. I can't believe there's a longer version of the boat chase. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, uh, I, and that, what a, that was a fantastic sequence to be, to be involved in and work on with that. I mean, all, all the authorities, everything that we, we did on that was just amazing. And the fact that obviously we had to protect the fish wherever we went, we had to create ice that we weren't going to injure any fish while we were filming it. Um, it was a, a, it was brilliant being involved in that. Uh, Is that the boat chase around the Millennium Dome? Yeah, around the Millennium Dome, and and you know, we end up on the dome, and because it was coming up to the year two thousand, we had all sorts of meetings with the, the with the dome operatives uh, for us to do yeah. the planning of that. Nowadays, with the, with the advent of the, the film commissions and the government realizing how much revenue we generate, you know, and that much revenue we bring for people staying in hotels and the spending, there's a, it's, it's much more film friendly now. Um, and, and because we can film at weekends, uh, that helps. If, uh, um, so, and it is everybody, well, you mentioned James Bond and everybody wants to be involved in it. And when, and when we were doing Native Tomorrow and, saying well Tom Cruise is in it that opened doors and I don't know if you remember the opening sequence where he flies in the helicopter and lands in Trafalgar Square well that was, yeah that, that took seven seven months of planning because we closed the underground we closed off the whole of Trafalgar Square um, and we had to, and the helicopter that we were flying was a 50 year old helicopter so we had to have two on standby in case anything went wrong with the first one because Tom as you know likes to do it for real. He wanted to be in that helicopter. Um, and we, we were based, the helicopter took off from the oval cricket ground and we put all Safeway trackway down so that we weren't gonna do any oil spillage or fuel spillage because the oval were very, very worried about that. And blow me, somehow we managed to get some oil on, on the turf on that and that cost a lot of money to get that all put right. Uh, but when we, when we did, I don't know if you remember in Skyfall, the beginning of Skyfall, um, when Bond is shot and he falls down and he goes over the waterfall. Well, the national park that we shot that in, in, in Turkey, uh, were happy for us to, to do the, the, the dummy falling over the waterfall, but we had to retrieve them all. Um, and we did it with four dummies. We took four takes. We managed to retrieve three on the day and then it took another three weeks for our dive team to find the fourth one. There's all that extra cost that goes on to those kind of movies. But again, but there is there is something exciting about when you do a film when you haven't got much money 
you know, and, and that's why I, I, I like to plug the flood again, because I, I think the flood deserves to be seen, not only because there's some great acting in it, but what we achieved on a really small budget is, is well worth people that are interested in, in coming into the, the film and television to have a look at. Uh, I remember doing um, a commercial when I was very young, and this is back in the old days, they used to have uh, glass artists, which instead of the visual effects you had now, if you were doing a shot and you wanted the car to have a cliff behind it, you'd paint the cliff and everything on a glass frame, which you'd put in front of the camera and run the camera through. I mean, and that was just magical watching somebody do that. Um, and we were doing, I think it was a Sayat uh, car commercial in Future Ventura. Um, and Phil Mayhew was the DOP, who was Martin Campbell's DOP on GoldenEye um, and Casino Royale, which for my money is the best of the modern films. Casino Royale was a brilliant film. Uh, but um, unfortunately, the, or we won't, my dad said to me, if you can't say anything good about anybody, don't say anything. So we won't go down the route of what's happened afterwards. But um, Casino Royale is, is a fantastic, but Phil Mayhew is a wonderful DOP. But the, 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 the glass artist with this, it had taken him a day and a half to paint it originally. As we went to turn over, it cracked. And, you know, and, the, and so he had to do it again in three hours. In three hours, which he did, Brian Bishop, his name was, sadly, he's, he's no longer alive. Brilliant technician. That, that's the, the great thing about the industry. You get to meet people who can do amazing things. The model makers. You know that that make that the scale models that, that are blowing up of a building or um, when on my when I came back when I on Tomorrow Never Dies I was the production manager in Baja California for the model unit for Tomorrow Never Dies and the stealth the stealth ship that we built it's just stunning and and when you see the film together and you and you don't know what was a model or what was for real and the same with uh, Peter Lamont who sadly again we lost just before Christmas brilliant production designer. And when we did Die Another Day, we, we, we went and did a lot of the work on the ice um, up in Iceland. But then we need, obviously, the close-ups with Piers, the, the detail on the cars. So when we came back to England, uh, Peter and, and the special effects, the art department, created the same ice on a disused airfield in Risington. And I promise you, if you watch the movie, you cannot tell the difference. You cannot tell the difference between the real, the, what was real and what was right, what was my dream die another day? You can tell when it's a fake uh, tidal wave that he comes out on, which unfortunately was a very bad decision. But not your decision. No, I can't. Well, no, actually, we did lots of testing on that, lots of testing because mm. nobody thought that we could make it look real and make it look right. Right. Um, and in fact, also in die another day, you open the sequence when you are on proper waves. You are riding real waves coming in when they land on the beach to try and do it CGI-wise. But I think Lee Tamahori has, has taken the blame for that. He has said that he is the one that insisted that he, he wanted to make it go. But it's just, they're the kind of things where your suspension of disbelief goes, you know, and then you, and you're, you're lost from that moment in the film. And it had Madonna in it, didn't it, as well? Ugh. Yeah, you can seek that out on YouTube. I think someone's put her entire appearance in the film as a YouTube clip. That's only if you want to have nightmares before you go to sleep. Yeah, maybe, you know, not before bedtime, kids, we should say. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a bit more about the famed Bond franchise, which has featured so prominently across your whole filmography, seven films. 
which is kind of neat. 007, seven films. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Serendipity, there you go. So do you have any um, special anecdotes that really stand out from your time across the disparate Bond films you've worked on? I've I, the great thing is that Ed, nearly all, all the Bond films, great things happened. I, I, on, on the world is not enough. Um, I'd never been in a helicopter before. So on my first day wrecking there was my first helicopter ride taking off upside the side of a mountain, which I, I'm thinking those rotor blades are going to hit that mountain at any minute, and then rise up and then being a, 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 on top of Mont Blanc and all the mountains there and just seeing that and thinking, my God, I'm being paid to do this. I'm being paid to look at that. That was a wonderful memory. When we did Skyfall in Turkey, the Turkish uh, railway board were brilliant with us in helping us in closing off the lines so that we could do all the action on the trains. Casino Royale is the one that I've got my the, the most uh, fond memories. We we went to um, the Bahamas on on Casino Royale, um, and I think um, the the recent film No Time to Die has gone back to Goldeneye uh, in Jamaica to use that as part. Of, I love the way that the Bond films revisit old locations. Uh, when when we were in the Bahamas, we had the sequence. I don't know if you remember the sequence where the free running sequence for me is just magical, absolutely. One of the best, because uh, it's not it's not the opening sequence technically, is it? Because the opening sequence is the black and white where he becomes Bond, where he, where he, sh he shoots. But um, we had the sequence where uh, on oh, the fight on the crane. Yeah, yeah, uh, and great music by David Arnold. But the the we were shooting the bit where the free runner comes running through when he, before he goes runs up the building, followed by Bond. And the bulldozer bull comes through and smashes through the, uh, all the building site. So with the first day we shot that, we had one of our cameras hidden to get that. And unfortunately, some of the debris uh, wrote off one of our 235 cameras, which is a lot of money, um, although we do have insurance. So as the production manager, it's my job to ring back to England and inform Barbara Broccoli and Callum and everybody that uh, we've done that, uh, which gets some consternation. Um, what I didn't tell them was that we were so sure that it wouldn't happen again. We were setting up to do that particular stunt the next day. And you will not believe the, the camera hide, the camera protection we built. But obviously you had to have one little aperture so that you could actually see the action of the bulldozer coming through you, coming through. And would you believe it? The one piece of thing that broke off from the bulldozer went straight through that hole and smashed another two, three, five camera. So in two days, we had broken two cameras and I very nearly got recalled back to London and they were gonna get this. Why did I allow it to happen? Uh, I think every film you have those wonderful moments when we were flying out to uh, the Bahamas, you normally go, if you're lucky, you, you, you get to go club class. So that's, that's a nice bonus as well. Um, and this particular flight out there, I think they were full up in, in business. So they upped me to first class, which was even better. So again, you think uh, I'm, I'm flying helicopters, I'm flying first class around the world. But it, they, obviously there, there is stress on it. Your, your, your job as a production manager is to try and get the best possible deals because you know you're going to spend money. You're going to need five or six cameras minimum on a big stunt. So you've got to get a deal where you can get those cameras on a, a, a proper rate. Like last year, I was in Mexico City. We were doing um, a film for Paramount called Infinite, which is going to star Mark Wahlberg. 
um, and the, there's a, like an opening sequence that we shoot through the streets of Mexico on a lot of the same locations that the that Spectre had filmed on when they did the Day of the Dead uh, scene in, in Spectre. Um, and they were very helpful, the Mexicans, again, again, because of their experience with Spectre and how much they enjoyed that, they were very helpful to us. The one problem we had on, on Infinite was that the, the big square, uh, that now the president lives there. Um, and so we had to be very careful that when we were doing our aerial uh, camera work, we didn't go over his, his property. And we nearly did get two MiG fighters or whatever the kind of fighters they are set up because it looked like we were going to stray into airspace that we shouldn't have done. So that, that would have made interesting news. But there's a whole team, great teams of location managers. But my uh, very, one of my first jobs as a location manager was for a television series starring Judy Dench called Behaving Badly. Um, and it's really a story where her husband leaves her. She has to move out of her plush Hampstead home and goes to live in Croydon. Um, and during the scene, one of the relatives dies and, they, and we've got a funeral scene. Now this is where it gets really complicated when a director has a set person he wants in his mind to play a particular character, even though that's causing all sorts of problems. The lady cast uh, as Judy Dench's mother uh, or friend, I think was in the, in, in, in the funeral scene, was starring in the West End in a theatre play. So she had to have her scenes finished by seven o'clock. We couldn't get into the cemetery, Putney Bell Crematorium, until after 4.30, after the last funeral, quite rightly, to show respect for everybody. We had been filming in Battersea Park before that. In those days, there was, I, there was me as the location manager, and I had one runner that would be doing my movement orders and things like that to show people where to go. I got delayed in Battersea Park as the unit were moving up, having said to the first assistant, please do not move anybody from Battersea Park until I am with you. We cannot go into the crematorium cemetery until after 4.30. They all ignored me. When I, and in those days, you could drive into the crematorium from the A3. I arrived to find our camera car and wardrobe car sandwiched between a few for a hearse and people. It was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Obviously, the vicar was beside himself with anger uh, and trying to persuade, uh, that please let us carry on. And I had to obviously go to apologise to the families, all because the director was worried that if we didn't get the scene finished by 6.30, the actors wouldn't get to the theatre. So there's, there's always those kind of pressures that you can well do. I, I would never be a location manager again. I, location managing is, is such a stressful job. See, as assistant director, I get to say, well, I want that road closed and I move on and do something else. And then it leaves about 30 people trying to work out how to close that road when we need it closed. Oh, we were talking about bonds, weren't we? We were. So before we, no, that was a great digression. There are no bad digressions. Not, not when you've got your level of experience. So before we leave Bond behind, um, I just wanted to ask you, there's a lot of speculation about who will take over from Daniel Craig, who's apparently really retiring this time. Is there any actor or actress, female actor, you think could fill those shoes? I don't want to take, well, I will take credit for this because when I worked with Idris on, on Luther um, and the first time I got to work with Idris, I noticed that Idris walks like Sean Connery. They both have got that wonderful magnetism, the way they walk. And I, I believe, I promise, I was the first person to say that Idris should be James Bond. 
Now, forget all the issues, whether he's black, white, you know, male, female, but Idris would, would be so brilliant because he's got, he's just got that, that, that magnetism. But I, I always wanted it, and I still want it to be Henry Cavill. I think Henry Cavill would be a terrific James Bond. Um, I've, I've got no insider knowledge now who, who is in the running or who, who they want to do it. Uh, but I thought Daniel was brilliant in Casino. Um, and there were some good bits in Quantum. Um, and then I, then I, for me, the Bond films became like Bond meets EastEnders. Uh, too much and, plot. Yeah, too, too... Extraneous plot. Yeah, and, and, and too much about, uh, oh, woe is me, how awful it is, mm. the life of that. You know, as the songs, you know, Skyfall wasn't too bad a song, but then the writings on the wall talk about, I want to shoot myself off, I've heard that song. And we get to no time to die is you know no time but plenty of time to cry david arnold wrote a great song which was i don't think used in the world is not enough only myself to blame scott walker exactly. the fantastic late yeah. scott walker exactly and and it's and it's it's from bond it's yeah. like bond singing it having a 17 year old girl no matter how talented mm. she is and i love the song i bought the song singing about that just doesn't work for me it's we've mm. gone away from what bond is you know the fact is when you're a cold-hearted kid, you do have those moments of self-doubt, but you can't, they've got to be few and far mm. between, not in three movies, not in three yeah. consecutive, anyway. Shut up, Terry. No. Actually, Terry, I wanted to ask you a question about the Bond mythology. And um, I, I, I've struggled with it, but I think I've come to terms with it. But can you please answer the question, is James Bond a man or is he a code name? So is 007 the story, do you find it the chronicles of one man or do you think it's a code name for several different ages? No, I think J James Bond is one person. James, for me, that's how, ever since I read the books, I've always changed But the 007 could go to anybody. So you, okay. could, you, you could have a Japanese 007, a white Japanese, black Japanese, uh, black Japanese, uh, black person <laughs> 007. Um, yeah. Yes, and that's why I think if you go that route, uh, it's so difficult because, you know, sadly, in the old days, we used to have white actors wear makeup to play Othello. You know, we, we moved on. We don't need that now. We moved on. There's enough yeah. great actors around the world to play all parts. As I'm approaching 65, I would still, I would like him to be somebody like Henry Cavill. I, I, I'm not sure I'd like him to be a woman. See, 007 can be a woman, but for me, James Bond has, has got to be a man. I mean, I remember there was a bit of a hoo-ha when people said Daniel Craig's blonde. Yes, I remember that. I mean, that was, a, I mean, that shows how yeah. rigid the history is of yeah. James Bond at the moment. But I think that also that's, the, I think that's the older generation as well, which is, which is sadly well passing now. So I think the, the younger people that have, maybe may have started with Roger Moore and even uh, Tim Dalton. Uh, yeah. so I, I love Timothy Dalton as James Bond. Mm. I thought, yeah, especially in the Living Daylights, I think he yeah. was a very underrated uh, James Bond. Yeah, I think he's the only one that, I mean, maybe up until Daniel Craig's last one, but I think he had the only Bond story where James Bond went rogue, isn't it? Yeah, which was Licence to Kill, which yeah, again, yeah, yeah. Licence to Kill was like a sort of forerunner of, 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 of Daniel's uh, James Bond. Um, but I, I love them all. I mean, even the ones I moan about, if they come on, I'll watch. Did you ever see The Man With... The man from Uncle. Oh yeah, I, I saw the TV series and I saw the one with Army Hammer and uh, Henry Cavill. I did. I hope you liked it. I think it was a great film. You know what I liked about the man from Uncle is the way they set up the camaraderie 
of from the yeah. because they were two spies who were rivals to each other and then they had a bit of a fight and then they had to come together so yeah. it was an uneasy alliance which because in the TV series you kind of forget that he's a Russian agent working in America as it goes along. But it, it, how weird it didn't connect with people, did it? It didn't do great at the box office. Why do you think that was? I wish I knew because it had all the ingredients of a bomb film. It had humour. It had that you know that antagonism between the two leads. It had beautiful women in it. Great, great. Alicia Vikander yeah, as well. Great score by Daniel Pemberton. Terrific score. Um, Ooh, great set as well. Production design. Yeah. No, it was. It, it looked fabulous. I. So if anybody hasn't seen it, I recommend you to see that. But of course, we haven't talked about my other favourite part of my career is Bollywood. Oh, yes. We should get on to that. Again, this is where doors open for you and it's luck. Because of my connection with the James Bond films, uh, there was a wonderful film called Ra One, which was starring Shahrukh Khan, uh, who's one of India's uh, biggest actors. Wonderful man. And they had started filming in Goa. Uh, and were coming to London to film. And they wanted, and there was going to be a lot of stunts and everything. Um, and Andy Gill was the, um, the stunt coordinator, American stunt coordinator, who the works with uh, Spiros, whose surname escapes me. They did the Fast and Furious movies, all those great, great action director. Um, so they asked me to join them because I'd worked on the Bonds. We did some great sequences in London. Uh, and because of that, the wonderful uh, DOP, Nicola Pecorini, an Italian DOP, wonderful man, asked, the Indian production team to take us to Mumbai to work on the film in Mumbai, which we did do. Um, but Shahrukh, because it was his company, and in India, Indian actors are and actresses are like gods and goddesses, they can turn up when they like. And Nicola kept saying, Terry, you've got you're the first assistant, you've got to tell Shahrukh he's got to turn up in the morning, we're ready to go and we're waiting for him. I said, Do you think I'm mad, Nicola? So Shahrukh turns it up, Nicola says, Nicola. Uh, Nicola says to Shahrukh, Terry's got something to say to you. He's very, very upset with you. And I went, what? Shahrukh is followed <laughs> by about 4 million Dropping people, you in I think, it. on Twitter in, uh, in India. So he put on, on yeah. Twitter, our chief AD, Terry Bamber, has just shouted at me. I received 300 death threats within 30 minutes Ooh. of that Twitter. And so they all thought that was hilarious. Wow. So they played with That's crazy. So Shahrukh gave me his bodyguard, complete with gun. <laughs> uh, the stunt team pretended to be a mob trying to break oh. down the, the studio doors to get in. They even got my lovely driver to come up to me and say, I can't give you a lift back to the hotel tonight, Mr. Bamba, because I have a wife and two children. <laughs> um, and the, the English camera team, being ever loyal, did this big sign with an arrow saying, this one's Terry Bamba. <laughs> but luckily, Shahrukh decided to do a new tweet saying, I was only joking. And then, so, now, so then I gained 300 Twitter followers. But I love the passion of filmmaking in India and, because, and, the, and the musical side of it, because I love musicals. It, it's just wonderful, um, brilliant, brilliant industry. And that's, again... There's a great film industry all around the world. Everywhere you go, you'll find great filmmakers. So I think the, the filmmaker that was on the tip of your tongue, I think it was Spiros Rezatos. Yes, yes. Uh, he's the stunt coordinator. Yeah, and, and, and second unit director as well on, on lots of... And, and my ex-wife has done a lot of work with him. Mm. Um, and she she's a script supervisor and she's 
just she she worked on they got rid of me after Skyfall. I, I got on everybody's nerves yeah. too much on Skyfall. So she worked on Spectre and No Time to Die, and and she's very excited about No Time to Die. So okay. fingers crossed. If we ever get to see it before I've died, I hope. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about the future. I mean, if you was given a hundred million dollars as a budget for a film, would you make a Bollywood film or would you try to make something else? I would, in fact, you know, I would love to try and do a combination. I'd like to try and do a spy, a, a Bollywood spy movie, because Ra Wan was a superhero spy oh, okay. movie. Ra he was a, a superhero and everything. And uh, have you ever seen it? If you get a chance, it, it's slightly flawed, but there's some great action sequences in there, some great music. Um, it's, it's well worth looking at. Was it intentionally written as a superhero film? Yes. Because uh, what happened is uh, he's Shah Rukh's character gets killed, uh, and then he's he's rebuilt as a as a as a sort of superhero Ra One. Exactly, it's a uh, it's a great story, and I I I would love to do. And I know, and I hate it because I hate people remaking films just for the sake of remaking them when they're never going to be better than the original. But just so I could get to go back to South Africa. And go to Rourke's Drift, his Andawana, and the Tal Nash. I'd love to do a remake of Zulu, but that's only because that would just be for me. I'd never want anybody to see it. I'd like to spend money on it and say yes. I and I tried to, and I, I, I guess really, I tried to re recreate it frame for frame as the original was shot. I mean, I saw the original Zulu must have been seventy-seven times in the cinema when it before, obviously before VHS came out and DVDs. And I got to see the 50th anniversary showing at the Odeon Leicester Square in 2014. It, it's, and what I love about that film was it looked at it from both sides, from the Zulu side as well as the British side. And, it, and, it, and again, this is another thing about films for me. I know people get very upset if a film isn't historically correct. But if a film engages you so that you want to learn more about what really did happen, then for me, the film's done its, its part. Because in, in Zulu, the movie, Hook, who's played by the wonderful actor James Booth, is portrayed as a drunk and, and a, a rubbish soldier. But in, in, in his reality, he was an exemplary soldier. Now, but I would never have read about the real Hook if I hadn't seen Zulu in the first place. So would this be like your Zulu would be, Terry Bamba's Zulu would be almost akin to a passion project like Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, in, in Zulu, because again, a great hero of mine was the first assistant on that. Um, and I'm going to have to look, I, I hate it because his name has escaped me immediately. Yeah. Um, but he was the one who came up there. They only had two, I think, 250 people, Zulus. They only had, and, and the, the sequence where the Zulus all appear over the horizon, it was his idea with the art department to have battens, long battens with the shields on, with a real person either end of those. So it would look, because we never had CGI in those days, to look like 4,000 Zulus. I did hear a fact about um, Zulu, because I'm editing a little film about the Myland Odeon, and apparently Zulu had its premiere at the Myland Odeon in East London, which is no more. Oh, well, that's brilliant, because it was because Stanley Baker, it was his, his pet project. He, he, uh, yeah, and uh, Michael Caine was brilliant as Bromhead. Uh, and I think the assistant director you're looking for, is it Bert Bat? Bert Bat, Bert Bat, brilliant man, brilliant man. And he was supported by Robert Porter, Howard Rene and Claude Watson. 
Yeah, I think Bob Porter probably directed the second unit, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and what I know, I've I, I, Zulu was a, a but and then again, I love Casablanca, even Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is, is still a, a fantastic film to look at. But my my film that I'm really fighting for for everybody to watch at the moment, especially with you know in our current climate with what's happening happening in America, is um, we don't need films to preach at us about that we're all important, that all our lives matter. But for me, the greatest anti-racism film ever made was In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. Um, and because that film entertains, it also highlights the awful racism that was there in the 60s. And, and the great thing is that like when I think Steiger's character says, and what do they call you back home, boy? And he says, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Because that's it. He's the lieutenant in charge. You're called Mister. You're called Sir. Whether you're black, white, Asian, got one arm, no arms, and that is that. That one line is it. Everybody deserves respect for what they do. That was probably one of the first films that actually portrayed racial conflict at the right scale and tone for that film. And Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier are two great actors as well. Um, one thing I wanted to jump into is. Um, under the current circumstances of COVID, social distancing and people having more obstacles to make films, what do you think of the position of online streaming for releasing future films against the high street cinema? And I'll give you some background to this because I think, um, is it Warner Brothers has sold their back catalogue for the next year, I think 2020 and 2021 releases, to HBO Max? so that the films get a guaranteed audience, but they won't be physically in the cinema. And if they are, it will be a cinema release. I think Wonder Woman's tried a cinema release date and online at the same time. But what's your opinion about someone being in the industry, Terry? I, I, I just want the cinema to, to stay. You know, I, 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 I buy all my, I've got all my films on the iPad and that I can watch, you know, but... There is nothing that can beat making the hair stand up on the back of your neck when you're in a big cinema and you and whether it's a film like Inception or or, or Black Klansman, a, a, a fabulous film Black Klansman, and, and the whole build up to the end there with, with the bomb. She's going to put the bomb there. To see that on the big screen, you're in, you're in it. You're absolutely in a big screen. You are in it. When you watch it on on a, a 32 inch. Uh, TV or on your laptop or even on your iPod or iPad, it's it isn't the same for me. It is. I, I'm glad it's there because I've got, I can watch Zulu when, when we finish this. Before I do my next video, I'll have a quick look at Zulu. I, I I totally believe it. It's a great platform for young filmmakers who want to get their you know their, their short films out, get them get them shown out there. And I do. I I I would I would hope that if we ever get back to normal, that we would still do the cinematic releases first and then go uh, streaming and that. Um, that. That's what I'd hope. I, I, I don't think you can beat the big screen. And and as much as I can't stand people eat, eating popcorn and all that, 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 you know, to share that in a room with someone where there, there, there is a, like in Jaws, oh, not Jaws, in, in Carrie, I remember Brian De Palma's Carrie, at the end of the film, I hope I won't get, when the arm shoots up from the grave, you know, the whole audience bounced. Everybody stood up. I was sat next to a pregnant lady. I nearly had the baby. It was that, that, that's the power of cinema that you won't get watching on your own on your laptop. 
but the good thing is that we're not going to stop making films and television. Every, you know, it's so important, and it, and it, and it, it, it gives so it, it, it helps make things important and move things forward. That we do embrace everything, and we all, I, because of working on Bond and working on a Bollywood film, I got to go to Fiji. I never thought I'd go to Fiji, but the producer of Ra One was doing a film in Fiji uh, called Warn in 3D, which was about some youngsters are out, it was a remake of an American true story, I believe, where some youngsters had gone swimming or gone out on a yacht. They all jumped off the yacht to go swimming. They couldn't get back on the yacht. Um, and this was a Bollywood remake. So I went to Fiji and a brilliant cameraman there. The, lo the local news cameraman was a brilliant cameraman. You know, I said, wherever you go, there's, there's great adventures and great people to meet. So, Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, but I just wanted to ask a final question, which is what projects do you have coming up? And I know you talked a little bit about a project you're hoping to direct in the future. So can you tell us a little bit more about that as well? The, my immediate future is, is doing this film uh, in Carmarthen, which will take us to up until March, which I'm really excited about because it, it's based on a true story. It's honouring a woman who fought because she loved the cinema and she loved the theatre and the arts and she wanted to keep it going for the youngsters of the town. Um, and then I'm working on, a, a, after we finished, I've got a Zoom meeting about a, a possible action film that might take place. We might start shooting that uh, May, June, uh, which is, uh, uh, it's called, I'm not, I better not give too much away, but it's a very good take on what really happened to the Jules Rimet World Cup in 1966, when it was, it got, it got stolen and apparently found by a dog. But well, this is a great take on it, what really happened. Um, and before Christmas, the, um, I had a, a Zoom meeting with the, the writer of the pub and the two uh, Canadian producers who wanted to produce it. So they, they were talking about later in 2021 going to Canada and making it. So I'm very excited about that. If it, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. You know, I... I, I the fact is, I look at my IMDb and I thought, crikey, did I do all that? How lucky was I to do all that? And the, the fact is, at least I've got some acting credits there because I normally get cut out of films. So it's, you know, I think I had out of my 22 acting appearances in films, 18 of them ended up on the cutting room floor. So I think someone was trying to tell me I didn't have any talent. But you did have a big moment in the Paradise Club. Yes, the, uh, that was a great, great. I love working on the Paradise. I played DC Bob Ray in that and Caroline Bliss was playing that uh, I've got a scene with her where I charge in through the warehouse. But yeah. at the, the first take of that, when I'm supposed to be the, the macho policeman charging in, I tripped over the seatbelt trying to get out of the car. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I should have done comedy, really. The Paradise Club, it, it was kind of um, semi-thriller, semi-comedy as well, because it was, a, I think it was about, um, it starred Leslie Grantham, as I remember. And Don Henderson as a kind of a, a kind of a kind of a craze brothers who kind of took over a dodgy kind of East End or South End like pub or club where all the kind of never do wells of the criminal society ended up eventually. Yeah, that'd be well worth. I think I'm not sure. I think it might be available on DVD. There's some good stuff in there as well. But uh, and the, the great thing is that, of course, they were, at that time they were just developing Canary Wharf, so we were able to use all those locations. Lots of action on cranes and stuff. And I remember, because I was the, the second assistant uh, on the first series, and we had the lovely actor, I think his name was Ben Lyons, playing a policeman. And he was supposed to go uh, climbing up this crane, real crane. And, and the first said, well, you go 
behind him in case there's any issues. Well, we get halfway up the crane yeah. and Ben just freaked. <laughs> he suddenly realized he was terrified of heights. So I, and I had to climb over him to get above him to try and, mm. so, so he's looking up at me, so he's not, and then talk <laughs> him down. I mean, that should have been in the making of. Yeah, I mean, the Paradise Club is very interesting because it seems like a, a precursor or a DNA for um, lock stock and two smoking barrels as well. Yeah, it was, it, and there were some great actors in that as well. Leon Herbert we had, and um, uh, as I say, Caroline Bliss played the, one of the police in it. And that was 1988, 89 we did that. I think, yeah. And the worst thing about getting to my age is when I have to, we have to fill out a new form and you have to scroll to put your age down. It takes me 10 minutes to get to 1956. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all well worth it in the end, Tony. Oh, it's well, well if, if, if anybody, on a serious note, if anybody does need any uh, information or anything, or uh, because we do do courses at Farm with that, would you like to share your email or your Twitter account, maybe, where people can follow you? Ah, I'm on Facebook, but I think I've, I'm only allowed 5,000 followers, as, and I am on Twitter, and I'm on, on Instagram. I'm on Instagram as Blazen Bamba. Now, Blazen, you see, is Czech for crazy man. And when, when we did Doom back in 2005, the wonderful Czech uh, gaffer said to me, he gave me, he said, you Blas and Bam, and it stuck. I think I love that, Blas and Bamba. So that's at B-L-A-Z-E-N-B-A-M-B-E-R on Instagram? Yes, yeah, on Instagram. Facebook is Terry Bamba, um, but I think they're full up there on there at the moment. Uh, but I am on Twitter, but I don't go on Twitter too much, so I keep upsetting people on Twitter. <laughs> well, um, Terry, it's been wonderful to catch up with you and just hold on to you for that an hour and 20 minutes for this conversation so we really appreciate your time and uh seeing your uh roller coaster of a career um and long may it continue thanks for sharing some insight advice and your journey thank you am i allowed to do one last piece of advertising go for it the proudest thing i've done for me in my life is doing the book about my dad's career you know, because as I say, my dad worked with Norman Wisdom, George Foreman, the first carry-ons, the first James Bond films, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Swiss Family Robinson, A Bridge Too Far. Um, and it's, his book is called From Props to Producing. And we actually only did it, we only created it for family, but we've actually sold over 500 copies. And we tried to, uh, we've raised £4,000 for charity through that. Uh, by charging like fiver on top of the printing costs. If anybody does want to email and interested in it, there's some fantastic photos in there of the film industry, uh, of, uh, of rare photos of, of filming Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and that. Um, and it's, that's the one thing I really am proud of. And bless him, touch, Dad's coming up 89 now, uh, and Mum's 87, and he's just done um, an interview with a, a, a chap's written a book in Tobago about the locations in Tobago for Swiss Family Robinson. Um, so even now he, he's helping people do things. Well, I hope he's like staying safe in the current time as well. Well, that's that's it. He's, he's I think he's going stir crazy. It's just him and mum at home at the moment, and no, it's horrible, horrible. But uh, well, everybody should stay. So it is, and, and, that, and that's the, the number one thing we're following with our filming at the moment is to keep everybody safe. We're having COVID tests every other day, temperature checks in the morning and the afternoon. We're all wearing masks. Uh, and in some cases, like the makeup and costume, wear the face visors as well when dealing uh, with the actors. So it's, 
we've got to seriously we we, we have got, we've, we've lost a lot of film industry people to covid you know friends um uh, I, I think i've lost about six friends to covid we mustn't let people say oh, it's not real it is it is real sadly um it, it is horrible i know you know people we, my, my ex-wife was supposed to have started a film back in June of this year, got postponed until February. Now it's gone back again. So I know a lot of people are struggling. Please God, we, well, we, we will come through it one way or the other, e even if we have to adopt procedures that we've got to adhere to all the time for the next couple of years. So, but that's why, don't forget, go and watch Casablanca, watch Ra One, Zulu, Casino Royale, um, and all those wonderful and uh, and black black clansman is one of my favorite films of recent times um and and inception i love inception thanks for the recommendations terry and we hope you work with christopher nolan soon as well <laughs> he, he he seems to be in, impenetrable from the coronavirus the way he's managed to release tenet yeah so i'm sure you'll you and him will be crossing paths very very soon but once again, thanks for your insight. Thanks for letting us know who you are, where you are, and what you do. And again, if you're interested in Terry Bamba, uh, you can find out more about him and his father, Dickie Bamba, from Props to Producer, which is a wonderful personalised history of the British film industry, including James Bond, and of many other tales and films in between that everyone in the UK, interested in UK cinema, should own. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank my co-host, uh, King Dom, for returning again. Well, thank you. And we wish you all the best out there in podcast internet land. If you'd like to know more about Geek Sweat, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. You can follow at G-W-E-K-S-W-E-A-T. We're also available on Spotify, Apple, and Castbox FM and many other platforms besides. That was your inspiration interview. Ciao for now. Bye.